the wonderful confession, there is none like you. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 14. You know, and we work through the Psalms when the pastor's not here with us. And um, although I think he may be here with us, live stream, so everybody, you know, sit up a little straighter. And, <laughs> not kidding. Uh, as you're turning uh, in your scriptures there to, to Psalm 14, we want to take just a moment to welcome our guests here this morning. We kind of got moving along in things, and we want you to know how delighted we are to have you here and are very honored by your presence. And uh, I know our, our uh, ushers in the back there have a special gift we'd like to get into your hands. Is there anybody here for the first time or hasn't received a gift packet from our church family? I think there's one up here with Melissa and a friend. So we're so thankful for her presence here with us. Anybody else? Mr. Stedman there, one whether he likes it or not, brother. <laughs> we got to send you away with a mug. Oh, that's important. Uh, if you feel free to take that in, all that out, that's all there for you. And I uh, want again just thank you so much for uh, gracing us with your presence. Um, we're a simple church. We love God's word. We love Jesus. And we love our community. We hope that's what you sense here. And uh, uh, if you're interested in getting to understand the scriptures a little better, or the Bible, we have lots of people here who would love to just read the Bible with you and uh, to encourage you in your understanding of the word. So thank you so very much for being here with us. There's a little card in there if you wouldn't mind filling that out. That's helpful. You could have a record of your visit. I know our pastor would love to send you a welcome letter. And uh, you can take that and either put it in the back of the chair in front of you. There's a little pocket there on the back um, of the chair. Uh, if not, I think Pastor Michael will be out in the lobby on the left there, and you can give it to him. And I know he'd love to just say hello and give a warm welcome uh, uh, with a handshake and a, maybe a beverage to go home with. And if you have any questions, he would delight to answer those for you. But he's the guy who was conducting the, or not really, just standing here leading us in music. So that was Pastor Mike. So he's hard to miss. Um, that's why he gets that job. He's the tallest of all of us. Um, all right, so we have our Bibles open to Psalm 14, and uh, if you're like me, you've probably already read through it a little bit. Some of you are, you know, you're, you're jumping the gunners kinds of people, and, uh, and that's good. We want to be Bereans. We want to search the scriptures, and, uh, you know, the topic of Psalm 14 is a bit of a challenging one. Uh, we know that uh, the information that we have in Psalm 14 is repeated several times throughout scriptures. In fact, uh, it's repeated three times in its content, and then it's given a, a very special commentary within Scripture itself. So it's listed right here in Psalm 14. You take over, uh, look over at Psalm 53. Essentially, the same psalm is going to be written again. And then all the way into the New Testament, in Romans chapter 3, we'll see the content of a portion of the psalm listed there. And really, Romans chapter 1 is a sort of a, a, a critical commentary uh, on how important this information is. So obviously if scripture says things once, it's extremely important, right? Uh, God said it, uh, that settles it. Uh, but when he says things three times, 
I think it's very important for we who are interested in making disciples of Jesus Christ that we as disciple makers really apprehend uh, what David is saying here, what the Holy Spirit is saying through uh, the mouth of David. Now, the first thing that we see coming into this passage is this idea of fool. It says here in verse number one, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds, and on it goes. Now, it's interesting that the Hebrew word for fool is Nabal. Nabal. Now, for those of you who are familiar with your Old Testament, you know there was a guy... Some commentators think his nickname was Nabal because nobody in their right mind would be given the name Nabal, uh, although uh, his wife called him that. Uh, so maybe, I don't know, that might have been his given name, although wives can help men understand their character. So we're going to take a minute uh, because as the more I study Psalm 14, I'm convinced, I guess, when it comes to you know, each psalm tends to have some sort of a backing or some sort of a historic setting up underneath it. And uh, it would be my guess that maybe uh, 1 Samuel chapter 25. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn there? And um, what you'll find in 1 Samuel chapter 25 is the story of Nabal. So, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, so we're going to get a picture of this concept of the fool as David seeks to describe him, but David interacted with a living, breathing Nabal. And we're going to try to find out what exactly uh, some of those things are. Now, in order to do that, I've asked some people to come up and read this passage. Now, we're going to read it in a little different light. Um, uh, you can see this is uh, Old Testament narrative literature is what we call it. And uh, so there's several characters and uh, I've asked a, a group of people to take on uh, the persona of the character. So they're going to come up right now and gather around here, and I'll introduce them to you so that you know who they are. And we're just going to read uh, verses 2 through 38. And that's a long passage, and I thought this might keep your interest a little bit better than I could reading through it. So we have the lovely Abigail, uh, Renee King. Renee, we need you to stand right here in front of the microphone. And uh, so, because you, you say the most important things, all right? And then on her right, or come on over here, Lance. We have King David. This is King David here, all right? And Ryan, you come on up here and kind of try to point toward the microphone on the side. There you go. Ryan is functioning as the young men in the text. So that's pretty simple. And then, uh, you know, you have to be good friends <laughs> with the guy that you choose to be Nabal. So... So Jameson was willing to read that. So follow along in your scriptures. I'm going to be the narrator since I have a microphone myself. And we're going to try to do this without a whole lot of foibles. Now, I asked these people to do this this morning. So uh, any problems we have with this, it's definitely my issue. So, But thank you very much. I know I'm pulling a lot of relational credit out of the bank here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, starting in verse 2. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel, a little parenthetical thing here, now the man's name was, there it is, Nabal, our Hebrew word for fool that we find 
in Psalm 14. And his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a Calebite. Now that's significant. Uh, uh, we remember Caleb. Remember he was the guy who said, give me that mountain. Uh, he was the one man who did not die along with that disobedient generation of Israelites. And... Um, he was just as young after 40 years, and he took on the most difficult portion of the promised land where the giants grew, and he carried his old body up those hills and conquered those giants. So we kind of go from Caleb to Nabal. How important is a disciple-making culture over generations? So he's a Calebite. Verse 4, that David heard... Uh, in the wilderness, uh, that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came... They spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to the men whose origins I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back. And they came and told him, according to all these words, David said to his men, Each of you, gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail... Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted. Nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. 
It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned for me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my lord, as the lord lives and as your soul lives, since the lord has restrained you from shedding blood, and from avenging yourself by your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompanied my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the Lord of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, Unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Sorry, David, there's a place oh. there. That's all right. <laughs> and said to her, Oh, go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Thank you very much. Well done. Well done. 
Well, hopefully that was a little better than listening to me read it. I think they did a great job. There's obviously a lot of things going on in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And if you ever want a passage of scripture to study in relationship to um, uh, unexpected things going on, uh, that would be a good passage to study. Certainly men and ladies. Uh, we're going to comment on it a little bit as we work through Psalm 14 here. But let's go ahead and pray together. And then we'll flip back to Psalm 14 and work through the passage. Lord, we thank you for the clarity with which your word speaks to our character. We thank you for the honesty. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage in Psalm 14 against the backdrop of 1 Samuel 25, that we'll grow in our understanding of, of fundamentally uh, the, the challenges that are in all of human experience and and particularly our own, uh, the character issues that reside within, deep within us. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to understand how it is we can grow in grace and become more like you, Jesus, and be less like Nabal. And for those who have never trusted you, Jesus, who are in the constant, overwhelming state of Nabal's existence, we pray that you would rescue them from that even this morning. And uh, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, our passage teaches us, our, in, in Psalm uh, 14, it teaches us to clearly understand that the times of moral corruption uh, that seem to be so abundant, and I would argue that perhaps you feel that way this morning, uh, perhaps you're discouraged, perhaps... Um, just interacting with all of the, the new sort of ideas about things that God has so clearly spoken on, and they differ from God's desire and demands. Uh, I think of the abortion, or I think of gender fluidity, or I think of uh, a sort of uh, completely divorcing ourselves from any understanding or reference to God, and, and, and the, the resulting confusion and chaos that ensues. I believe Psalm 14 is a psalm that uh, exists to help us understand that to one degree there is nothing new under the sun. This was certainly David's issue, uh, the, the, the challenge he had in his time. And uh, we just read a passage of scripture in 1 Samuel 25 where literally the kingdom was in confusion. David was running for his life. Uh, he was, uh, his back was up against the wall. Saul was trying to kill him. Obviously, uh, people in Israel had no interest in who he was. They sought their own designs and interests. And it was a difficult, confusing time. Uh, and the same thing is true uh, of us today. But the question for us is, well, how should the church react and respond? What, what should be our emotional makeup, really, uh, when we are dealing with the moral corruption that's all around us. That's one application I want us to see. And then another application, obviously, is for those of you who have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there's an inherent warning here in this passage to the futility that exists in a life lived without reference to the God of heaven, to welcoming his commands and his designs in your life and replacing that welcoming with a refusal. And I want you to see the utter folly of that as David walks through it. Um, 
So that's what we're going for. So three points simply as we look at Psalm 14. The first of which is I want us to observe the cause for moral corruption. The cause for moral corruption. We've already seen a picture of that cause in the life of Nabal. But uh, David in this psalm, uh, really in verse number one, says, uh, picks this idea up of the cause. He says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, these fools. They have committed abominable deeds, these fools. We've already mentioned that the Hebrew word for fool here is Nabal. Uh, one author writes in reference to the definition of this idea of fool, this Nabal. He says, Nabal is a person who has a problem more in his or her heart than in his or her head. In other words, the fool is not lacking data. The fool is not lacking information. The fool instead is wholly committed to his own self-interests. And he willfully sets aside any obvious data that's around him, and he heads in a completely different direction. He may or may not really be an atheist. I know uh, some of us might say, ah, this is an atheist. Uh, the technical definition of an atheist is somebody who philosophically doesn't believe there is a God. Uh, but we need to understand that David's treatment of this fool here in Psalm 14 really has nothing to do with a philosophical commitment. That's not what this fool is. Uh, he may or may not really be an atheist, and he is not ignorant. But he lives as though there is no God. He lives. His activities and actions, what he does, demonstrates that he believes there is no God. Um, he disregards the revelations of God in reference to what wise living is all about. Instead, he gives himself over to corrupt living, to deeds that are vile in the sight of God. You know, we have here in, in verse 1 uh, a quote of the, or, or in the heart of the fool, there is no God. In the Hebrew, we need to understand the words there is is not in Hebrew. They are supplied by the translators, and I think rightly so, but we miss a bit of a nuance that I think David's trying to help us understand. Uh, the words there is, they're supplied. Verse 1 would better read literally, no God for me, thank you very much. If I could put it in the modern-day vernacular. No God for me, thank you very much. God for you is just fine, but no God for me. See, this isn't a philosophical commitment. Uh, this fool is not trying to go and gain other foolish people to his cause. This is, no thank you, no thank you, no God for me, thank you. This is beyond a philosophical atheism. It's not a professor pontificating on the metaphysical existence of God. No. It's an individual just like you and me making a decision at any moment to create a pathway 
to fulfill his or her lusts without remorse. It's sick and tired of feeling guilty over doing what it wants to do. So it's going to create a pathway. No God for me, thank you very much. It has a high commitment to this. It is a pathway that actually argues with an alleged moral superiority the right to downplay and even do away with the natural consequences of immorality. Reasons for abortion, suppose safe sex outside of marriage, cohabitating outside of the bonds of marriage, the evil and vile and polluted all under the auspices of so-called art are maybe examples of the irrationality of this sort of pathway. It convinces that right is in fact wrong and wrong is in fact right. It's the height of irrational existence. These are the results of those who simply say, no God for me, thank you very much. Now, Romans 1, we've already mentioned, is the commentary really on Psalm 14. And the question we want to ask uh, uh, in Romans, and Romans gives us the answer, is why is it that one who denies the existence of God creating this pathway, why is he a fool? Why is it, specifically? Why is it? Well, simply put, it is because he is willfully blinded to his own irrationality. I know that's sort of circular. But he's willfully blinded to his own irrationality. He kind of likes this existence. It's sort of a self-serving, non-ending, rational thought process that allows him or her to do whatever they want without remorse or feeling guilt. And if you try to make them feel guilty or remorseful, you're the idiot. That's essentially it. He knows there is a God and yet chooses to deny it. Um, uh, Boyce, if you're interested with him, uh, uh, as a commentator, he's very helpful here. And, and he lists these things. This is not original with me. But he helps us here. He says this. If a person knew categorically, in fact, there was no God, and said so, he would be wise and perhaps even courageous for standing against the nearly universal but mistaken opinions of humans who believe there is a God. If he did not know whether there was a God and said so, he, in other words, if he genuinely didn't know and said so, uh, uh, he would at least be an honest skeptic or an agnostic. If a person perhaps is convinced there is no God when actually there is one, he is merely mistaken. But none of these is the case in the book of Romans. None of them. What is so foolish is that he or she knows there is a God and yet chooses to believe and act as if there is none. And what motivates the individual to that level of understanding is really, it says in Romans 1, it's his appetites. And we would say the lust of his appetites. God has given all of humanity appetites, right? We like to eat. We like to enjoy things we hear. We like to uh, 
Uh, human sexuality, we, that's a wonderful appetite that God has given us. These are all good and wonderful things. But the fool who says, no, thank you, no God for me, takes all of those appetites and they go rip-roaring wild in his life. And they turn into lusts. And he wants all of that. And as a result, moral corruption and confusion abounds in his life and in the sphere of his influence. So foolishness, as David describes it here, is the state not only of the fool, but it says here at the end of verse 1, there is no one who does good. So as we are sort of viewing the fool in its, in its uh, hyperbole, not really hyperbole, but it is truly defined, David begins to see in the fool not just merely a tragic description of an individual. He begins to see in the fool a bit of a mirror a mirror that as he gazes upon it begins to reflect on himself. Even as one who calls upon the name of the Lord. This foolish tendency is still resident in his reality. And he, 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 he expands and we'll see that. This is not a choice because of well, the foolish choosing. It's not a choice because of well-reasoned data, but a choice to drink deeply of the forbidden lust cause when natural appetites go wild. It is important that we truly understand the real cause of corruption in our life and in our context. It's saying, no God for me, thank you very much. That's the cause. That's the only cause. Secondly, this morning we see in our passage an assessment of the state of moral corruption in humanity. There's two people that assess this. First of all, it's David. We already sort of uh, tipped our hand here. David says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, they are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, and from his limited geographic sphere of understanding, he says there's no one who does good. And he includes himself there fundamentally. In other words, uh, anyone left to themselves will always morally make these forbidden choices, forbidden by the holy God of heaven. And he recognized in his own spirit, and we have the scripture witness to that reality in his choices with Bathsheba and other things. Still a part of him there. So we have David's assessment. Uh, the word corrupt here, as he says, uh, they are corrupt. This is an interesting word. I want you to smell this word. Can you smell this word? Because it's only until you can smell it that you really get the idea that it's a bad, bad idea. When I was young, I used to, uh, I, I, I played some sports, a lot of sports, played football. Uh, when I'd come home from football practice, I was always very hungry. I used to eat whole meatloafs at a time. Uh, and this is when I was 12 and 13. And I used to drink gallons of milk at a time. And I remember coming home, or half gallons. And I remember coming home, just dying again, you know, crawling through the door, you know, rapidly starving. And, uh, you know, of course, my mom joyfully fed me. But grabbing a half gallon of milk and beginning to chug it down, only to realize that it was past its date, it was curdled and sour. <laughs> And immediately, it just bursts out of my nose, and I cough, and I wheeze. 
I, be, I run to the, you know, the sink, try to get sloshed around water, and that did not leave me for hours. That's the Hebrew word for corrupt. It soured milk. That's the result of a life lived by men and women who say, no God for me, thank you very much. And they begin to chase after the longings of, of, of flesh, of, of bellies, of appetites, all of which God has created, but, but they, they push out the boundaries and they rush over the top of the boundaries that God has established. And their life takes on a life that smells like, looks like, has the influence of sour milk. And it's a very sad, sad thing. We have also God's assessment here, verse 2 and following. God broadens the sample size. The Lord, verse 2, has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. So you, you have this, the Lord's going to kind of weigh in on this. David's assessment, and he sort of looks down from heaven. That this is a picture of God's sovereignty, that even though this corruption abounds in David's experience, it's not beyond God's control. He's going to look over the bounds of heaven, and he is going to observe it. And he has some of his own assessment. He investigates, you see there in verse number two, the sons of men. So he broadens the sample size. He decides to look over all of the earth and to look at the character of all men, particularly those who are not seeking him. And he's going to ask this question is about moral corruption. And it's, it's down to uh, uh, the individual. Now, God's always interested in individuals. Um, you know, though God has created the universe, massive, massive time and space, you know, he, he still has a longing and a love for each individual. And he, he says to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So he individually, he individually investigates the sons of men. He essentially comes to the same conclusion as David, and the results are devastating. They turn aside. Remember, this is an interesting word here, uh, verse 3. They have all turned aside. So this has the idea, not that, so they start off in the mud, and they just keep chugging in the mud. No, this is, they have to turn aside to the mud. In other words, as the book of Romans puts it, they intuitively understand that there is a God in heaven, that they are morally responsible to that God. They have this, the Bible says, put in their hearts by virtue of the fact they're created in the image of God, by virtue of the fact that God has set eternity in their hearts, by virtue of the fact, Psalm 19, there is general revelation that says nothing if it doesn't say there's a God in heaven who is bigger and greater and smarter and faster and better than you. And yet, all that gets set aside. And the creature, you and I, we exchange that to worship all the created things rather than the creator. That's our tendency. So that we can do unrighteous things because we love 
our appetites. We love to do unrighteous things. We want to do what we want to do. So we've got to get rid of God. We've got to get rid of that. God's a problem in that construct. So they intuitively know this, so they have to turn aside somewhere else. It's hard work to be a fool. But they're consistent. And you and I are consistently foolish outside of Jesus Christ. All of mankind is. This condition creates a solidarity. They become corrupt together. It's akin to the, have you ever uh, remember that short story, The Emperor's New Clothes? Short tale by uh, Hans Christian Andersen about two weavers who promise an emperor a new suit of clothes. And they say, sir, the clothes are invisible. And they're invisible to people who are unfit for their positions. They're invisible to stupid or incompetent people. So while in reality they make no clothes at all, making everyone believe the clothes are invisible to them because they're stupid and unfit and whatever, and when the emperor parades before his subjects, obviously with no clothes on, no one dares say anything lets they're thought of as being stupid until what happens? A beautiful little child says, he doesn't have any clothes on. And the whole thing collapsed. Yeah. We need to have faith like a child and believe God. So scrutinizing down to the individual, all human beings, not even one, it is here that the conditions brought about by the fool become less a description of something else or someone else and more of a mirror on each of our own condition when we are outside of Jesus Christ and even when we are in Christ and we are wrestling with that old sin nature. Just like sour milk is absolutely unacceptable to you, so is mankind who in the question of individual morality consistently turn aside Turn aside from God's longings and desires, longings that lead to holiness, longings that in holiness the experience is happiness. But all of that is exchanged for this kind of thing. So number three, David has located the cause of moral corruption uh, in the character of all of mankind now. The conditions that emerge are nothing short of impossible from our perspective. However, God has built in protection against the world becoming completely corrupt, verses 4 through 7. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread? Do they not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread. There they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. So the cure for moral corruption, there's a rhetorical question here, a question that highlights the incredible irrational commitment humanity has to fulfilling and rationalizing over its lusts and its natural appetites of its belly. What's so alarming is they don't simply want to coexist with the moral and righteous, they want to eliminate them. The messenger of God is preyed upon as they do uh, uh, the very message. But in David's case, what he says, do they really think that God is going to remain idle forever? And that's where we reference the story of Nabal. Back in 1 Samuel 25, God was not idle forever. Now, 
We want to be careful of that as we bring it up into the New Testament church. It is not ours to go around and say, you're going to have a stroke because you're a vile person. Or you're... No, that's not what we do. We make disciples. We have a greater joy in vindicating the name of God, not by removing the influence of lost people who are committed this way, but we have the joy of vindicating the name of God by seeing them become a part of our team, and such were some of us. We're sinners saved by grace. This is who we are in the church. We are these people. We are really good at being Gentiles. We've got that in spades. And when we come to Jesus, so we remember. So we're talking about the emotional makeup that we ought to have in this morally uh, frustrating time in our, here in our community. It's one of pity. It's Jesus saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like hens or like a mother hen gathers her chicks but you would not have me it's not anger folks we remember well and in fact we still wrestle with dark moments no god for me thank you very much and god has to obviously he's going to work on the believer he's going to he's going to spank us and he's going to work us back Uh, but the lost person needs the lord So the rhetorical question, a devastating reality, verse 5, we tried to read it with emphasis. There they are in great dread. There they are. Remember Nabal in in, in 1 Samuel 25? He was just partying up while his wife's saving his neck. Oh, there's some awful wordplay there in the Hebrew. Nabal is compared to a bladder that holds urine. David had already threatened. He said, look, I'm going to kill every male in Nabal's family who urinates against the wall, it says in Hebrew. In the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, the word for bladder is N-E-B-E-L, Nebel. Nabal is nothing more than a Nebel until the wine goes out of him. It's horrifically tragic. It's gross. And here it is. It's a devastating moment there in the imagination of that man who's committed, that woman who says, no God for me, thank you very much. They're overcome in dread, and he was. And he was. In the church age, Jesus came, and he reveals grace and truth, right? Wrath and truth is yet to come. That's in the kingdom. So God is very gracious, very gracious, and yet the church here is telling the truth, telling the truth, telling the truth. And more than that, we're living the truth. We should be. And we're a thorn in the side of our friends who don't know Jesus, and they're not liking us very much. And they're not only not liking our message, they're in fact not liking us. But we work hard at loving. And the dread will come, my friend, as each one of our friends wrestle with their own mortality as they walk in the valley in the shadow of death in this life, they will be filled with fear because they have no confidence that the good shepherd is theirs. And one day they're going to stand before him with whom they have to do. He who is to be feared above all, Jesus the judge. Oh, that'll be a fearful day. So that day will come. That day may not come to sort of reduce your issues with this individual, but it'll come. It'll come. 
but we long to see them come to know Jesus. There's a promise of preservation, verses 5 through 6, and then the hope of the church, the coming messianic kingdom. We pray that it comes. Isaiah 32, verses 1 through 7, you need to read those scriptures there. So church, family, a fool, Nabal, Nebel, Let's work at becoming more like Jesus Christ. Let's be honest about what our problem is. Okay? And let's not, let's not sort of exchange holiness for rationale, reasons that I have a right somehow. No, let's walk with Jesus and deal with our sin. Okay? And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're... Um, the moral corruption that you're continually choosing for your life, uh, it's confusing, and it will be. It's chaotic, and it should be. Your hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. He died on the cross for the wrath of, God's, of God for your sin. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He accrued all that you'll ever need to stand before God in heaven with him forever. He died to pay the penalty for the wrath of God for your sin. And he wants you to proclaim him as not only your Savior, but he wants you to proclaim him as your Lord. You need a new boss in your life. And Jesus is the only one worthy of being that boss. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our opportunity here to gather underneath the auspices of this psalm. We've gone a little long. Thank you for the patience of these dear people. Uh, with every head bowed and every eye closed, you know, folks, um, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, you have a friend who probably brought you. And I would encourage you uh, to spend some time with that friend and ask them point blank to give them your, their testimony about when and how they gave their life to Jesus Christ. Could you do that? and to begin to open up your heart and mind to the idea that God wants so much more for you. But you have a problem. That's your sin and your commitment to saying, no, God, thank you very much. I'm going to do my own way. Please, be done with that. Uh, and we commend that to you. Lord, we love you. Thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>